Well, it's that time of the week again. It's time for Chit Chat Across the Pond. This is episode number 533 for April 14th, 2018. And I'm your host, Allison Sheridan. This week, our guest is Bart Bouchatz, but we have a light version of Chit Chat within an Ocilla Castaway's definition of the word light. Correct, Bart? Yes. It, it, I mean, it is going to be a first principles look at something everyone was used every day. Uh, and at the end of it, I do bring it all together to answer the actual question I set out to answer, um, which is which DNS service should I use? Because now we have Quad 1, Quad 9, Google's 88888, there's Open DNS that's been around forever. It's like, okay, great. I've decided I don't like Comcast's one. Now what? Yeah, yeah. I, I, I love being the host of a show where when we're digging deep into DNS resolver technology, that's the light episode, right? <laughs> Fair point. Fair point. Yeah, but that's why that's I guess that's why I love the show. Um, yeah, exactly. We collect our own kind. Yes, as you would say, there are people. Exactly. And I feel like castaways literally are your people. There you go. And uh, I, this is actually a special episode for Steve because he specifically, as soon as he heard of this new Quad One, he said. Well, Bart's going to explain it to us, right? <laughs> and it's like, I, I think there's a lot of us who we see the news and we just say, yep, not even going to read it until Bart tells me what, what, uh, what I need to know. So, okay, here we are. I need a Bart. <laughs> yes, we all do. All right. Well, so, to some extent, Brian Krebs is mine. But anyway, that's so true. we're going to talk today about the domain name system or DNS, which is sort of like the yellow pages of the internet. It maps records of many different kinds to hierarchical human-friendly names that you and I and everyone else know as domain names. By the way, we might already have a cultural difference. Uh, white pages are the ones, uh, is what it's like where, if, and actually kids go ask your parents what the white pages and yellow pages even are. Yellow pages were for like ads and stuff. Right, so like they can find take more plumber. than phone numbers. Ah. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, maybe maybe we'll allow yeah. it. Okay, I see. Because most people say it's like the phone book, but no, it's not like the phone book because the phone book is just telephone numbers to names. It's much more like the yellow pages. There's more going on here, which is kind of why I intentionally picked the yellow pages. Okay. Yeah. Thank you for making my point so eloquently. <laughs> so I said it's hierarchical, so that means that there's some sort of nested structure. So what do we use to separate the bits? Well, the answer is the dot, as we have come to call it in our societies, or the period or the full stop. But either way, we call it the dot. So whenever you see a dot, that's breaking the domain name into its parts. And while you read a domain name from left to right, the hierarchy is in reverse. So hmm. www.podfeet.com is how we would read it. But com is the top level domain or the TLD. Podfeet.com is a subdomain of com. And www.podfeet.com is a subdomain of podfeet.com. Okay. I guess that's that's so kind of like regular street addresses, right? You first need to know my zip code, then my state, then my city, then my street, then the number on the street. That's true. Should we do those in the same reverse order? Yeah. Because yeah, it's name of person within the house, number of house, street. Okay. So it is the same direction. Yeah. Uh, but some people find that confusing that it's the com is actually the parent of Podfeet, yeah. which is the parent of www. Yeah. So .com is the top level domain, the TLD, we call it, right? Yes, indeedy. Okay. So I have said that it's, DNS is about a lot more than just turning 
domain names into IP addresses, which is certainly what most people would say. If you ask someone to give you the elevator pitch on DNS, they're going to say, well, it turns, IP, it turns domain names into IP addresses, is what they're going to say. And that is a true statement, but it doesn't capture all of what DNS does by a long shot. So saying it turns IP or domain names into IP addresses, that's describing two types of record, the A record and what we call the quad A record. So DNS records have a type. And so a type A record takes a domain name and turns it into an IPv4 IP address. And you want to guess what a quad A record might do? Must be IPv6. Bingo. And an IPv6 address has four times as many bits as an IPv4 address. So it's A to quad A. Wait, it's I think uh, you might have said that a little typo in your voice there. I th- you mean an IPv6 has four times as many as an IPv4? Yes, I do. Okay, good. Yes. Uh, well, I think it's 32 bits and 128 bits. That works, doesn't it? Yes, it does. Uh, the next type of record is sort of related. is the C name record, which stands for canonical name. Uh, not particularly useful for trying to remember what it does, but it's an alias. So a C name record maps a domain name to a domain name. Hmm? Uh, so you might say, let's say that I decide I'm running a company called Bart's Widgets or something. Uh, or no, yeah, so I'm running a company called Bart's Widgets and I'm offering an email service and someone decides to become my customer. So they have mail.theirdomain.com and they don't want to hard code my IP address into it because what if I change my IP address? So instead, they create a CNAME record that says that mail.mydomain.com maps to mail.bwidgets.com. And so when I change my IP, your IP changes because you're an alias to me. Yeah, I'm, I'm trying. Uh, I think I understand what you're saying. The example is a little weird. How would my mail be your IP address? Well, let's say I'm offering a mail service. So I, I'm, yeah. I'm selling email as a service. And okay. so you, you are my customer, but you're going to use your own domain. Ah, okay. But, but the mail server is actually Bart's Widgets. Yeah, exactly. Oh, so you're okay. just going to alias mail.yourdomain. So people would see this. A lot of people have Google as the actual engine for their email, but the domain names that you see are, you know, not Google. And a lot of that is done with CNAME records. Okay. So it's, it's a convenient I, I way remember, to I remember when you helped me move from one service to another waiting for C names, having to do something with C names. So this definitely rings a bell. Yes. Yeah, it, it's quite common if you're buying some sort of software as a service to use a CNAME record to bind the nice domain name on your domain to the real domain name that's doing the actual work where you've just bought the service. Yeah, okay. Uh, the next really important type of DNS record is the MX or Mail Exchanger record. And the MX record is used to specify one or more email servers that are responsible for accepting email for a given domain. So podfeet.com, the A record for that will point at your website. But the MX record for podfeet.com will not point at your website. It will point at whoever you've chosen to employ or use as your mail provider. How do you remember so you which have one separate... of these is which? Like CNAME being the... So CNAME is just an alias, right? So right, but a CNAME, CNAME alias is a domain name to domain name. So you can have a CNAME for your MX record or a CNAME for your A record. You can have a CNAME for anything. So CNAME is just an alias. Right. I'm just trying to think of a mnemonic to help me remember which one of these is which. Like the M and MX might help me remember it was email. Well, mail. Mail exchanger. MX. Mail exchange. So that okay. one. That's CNAME. actually the only easy one. Oh. Actually, no, it's not the only easy one, but it's it's one of the easiest. But they must ones. Have a come record with is really hard. They must have come from yeah. somewhere. Well, CNAME is canonical name, 
Canonical name. Okay. All right. And the, the, so the logic is that the thing, that the value of a CNAME record is the real server you want to go to. So it's the canonical name. So the alias is, is the first thing. And then the thing it actually goes to is the canonical name. Not particularly good mnemonic, but that is where the name comes from. Uh, the other kind of record then is a PTO record or a pointer record. And in conjunction with two very special domains, in-adder.arpa and ip6.arpa, PTO records are the backwards equivalent of A and quad A records. They turn IP addresses into names. So an A record turns a name into an IP address, and a PTO record turns an IP address into a name, which is why you can go to the terminal and type nslookup space an IP address, and it will tell you what its domain name is. That's done with PTO records. Huh. Okay. So also known as reverse DNS. Okay. PTR is reverse DNS. Yep. Or is where the records, records are stored when you do a reverse DNS. They, they, yeah, so when you, when you are the owner of an IP address, so if you go and you get the, you go to ICANN and you get assigned an IP address that is yours, so mm -hmm. you'd need to be some sort of ISP or a business or something, you also get assigned the rights to put DNS records on a special domain that allows you to create these PTO records. Hmm. Why don't they just so read the table backwards? No, it doesn't work like that because um, you can have... One one A record can point at fifty IP addresses. Uh, oh, but one right. PTO record can uh, only point at one domain name. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, good answer. Glad I asked. Okay. Mm -hmm. uh, the next one then is the NS record or the name server record, and this is what makes the hierarchy hierarchical. You use a name server record to delegate control of a subdomain to another DNS server. So the D the DNS servers for the com top level domain use NS records to delegate control of podfeet.com to your name servers. And if you wanted, you could sell, you know, bart.podfeet.com to me and delegate control of that with more NS records. And then I could... Oh. Some, so you, if, it can go all the way down, but basically the NS records delegate control of a subdomain to another server. Hmm. And that's how you hand over control. So within a corporation, you might have like ireland.mycorporation.com and uk.mycorporation.com where you would delegate control of the different subdomains to the different locations, etc. So that's what name server records are for, for delegation. And just for people's information, it, this is when you're doing the subdomain, like Bart explained, where you started with com, then you went to podfeet, then you went to www. Uh, the subdomain is the thing to the left. It's not if it's podfeet.com slash live. That's not a subdomain. There's another name. Right. What's the name for that? Well, that's a path within a web within a URL. Oh, so a URL a contains name. a domain name. No, a URL contains a domain name. So the bit after the colon slash slash and before the next slash is the domain name. Mm -hmm. But a domain name doesn't have any slashes on it. Okay. Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So that's NS oh, records. They're NS records. Uh, then we have SRV records, which most human sort of average human beings, they see the benefit of them, but they have no idea that they're in use. Um. SRV records are used for service auto-discovery. And Microsoft are absolute... Microsoft completely and utterly heart SRV records. <laughs> um, when you walk into a corporation and they have bought a site license, you just wander in and your Windows machine automatically figures out that it's licensed. Oh. How, the, how does it do that? Well, the answer is there's an SRV record published which tells the Windows machine what the IP address is of the license server, and then it goes and checks in and gets itself a license, and all the accounting happens. 
So you as a user, all you see is I turn my machine on, it just works. But what's actually happened is behind the scenes, there's a whole bunch of SRV records published by Active Directory and Microsoft Licensing Server and um, Skype for Business uses them heavily. Microsoft just uses them all over the place, which is why a lot of Microsoft stuff just seems to magically find itself on the network. But it's not magic. It's DNS. And specifically, it's SRV records. That's interesting. I never uh, heard of that. That's cool. Yeah, so to be honest, only DNS admins ever hear of SRV records because we're the only people who ever have to set them. And the last we should one, all appreciate them. You should. <laughs> the last one then is the generic it could be anything type of record, which allows you to associate an arbitrary piece of text with a domain name. And it is known as a TXT record. And TXT records are used for a whole bunch of cool modern stuff that no one thought of when they were designing all the record types in the first place. It basically is a generic, it could be anything. Uh, common uses. Um, sometimes you have to prove ownership of a domain name in order to get an SSL certificate or something. And one of the ways you can do that is that they give you a gigantic long random number and they say, to prove you control this domain, publish this random number as a TXT record on your domain. And if you can do that, then you clearly own the domain. Ah. Therefore, I'll now issue you a certificate. Okay. Uh, there are also a whole bunch of modern protocols for trying to control spam, which make really heavy use of TXT records. There's something called the Sender Protection Framework, or SPF. And it allows the owner of a domain to specify the list of IP addresses that are allowed to send email on behalf of that domain. Oh. And then if anyone else uses it, so if any spammer tries to spoof your domain, if the IP, the, if the IP address the packets are coming from isn't on the SPF list, and then spam filters go, toodle pip, goodbye, you are, you are, you are rejected. Uh, but of course, that's just a random string of stuff. So it's a TXT record. It starts off with SPF1 colon equals, I think, and then the rest of the record. Uh, there's also something called DMARC, which allows you to publish um, the public keys that belong to private keys that you use to sign all email for your domain. And that way, if a spam filter receives an unsigned email, then it's not really from you. And they use the TXT records to you know, to figure out if the, key, if the keys match. And then there's something called DMARC that allows you to publish a policy for spam filters. So if a spam filter receives an email that claims to be from podfeed.com, if you had a DMARC record, you could instruct the spam filters what you'd like them to do with it. And you might say things like, insist it be digitally signed or it's definitely fake. Or I don't have digital signatures, but I do expect you to honor the, um, say, uh, SPF record. Hmm. So DMARC lets you specify the policies. But again, it's just random pieces of text. So again, TXT records are what make that go. So the reason spam isn't nearly as bad as it was five years ago is largely down to TXT records. Really? Oh, interesting. Yeah. Plus that one I can remember too. <laughs> TXT text, yeah. 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 I mean, dot .txt files. And SRV is pretty good too, and so is NS, right? It's just those C names are evil. Yeah. Okay, okay, so that's that's uh, that is a good description of a lot of the things that DNS does, but that's actually not an exhaustive list. There's even more types of record, but I think that's sufficient to to make my point that this isn't just a phone book. This this is really quite a powerful system. Yeah, yeah. Okay. That, that so the amazing. next point of massive confusion is that everyone talks about DNS servers. And the problem is, without proper context, that's actually a completely meaningless term because there are two utterly, totally, and completely different types of DNS server that do the exact opposite job of each other. 
and we use the shorthand DNS server to describe both. <laughs> and and not to mention that what is that uh, like ATM machine? What is that uh, when you use the acronym part of the word of the acronym in the acronym? Uh, no, in this case, you're not domain name system. Not okay. domain name server, domain name system. So, so I've always called not. Oh, okay. It's not a redundant acronym. Okay. I think the worst of those is is I lost my personal PIN number. <laughs> That's the, the I is the only thing you do any value in there. Anyway, so the, it's a game of two halves. So the first thing you need for DNS to work at all is for there to exist on the internet servers which publish DNS records for all the domains that exist. Okay. And they have the very sensible name of authoritative DNS servers. So they publish truth. And so... Wait, authoritative is what you wrote in the Authoritative. Okay. Yes. I pronounce it the authoritative. That's how we say it okay. No, you missed a syllable. to you guys. No, you you missed a syllable. You said authoritative, I I think. Well, somebody's got to play back and find me wrong. So maybe you did, maybe you didn't. (laughs) That's what I heard. Okay. Yeah, it's a difficult word. Okay. So the ones that publish information to the network are called authoritative... Or authoritative DNS servers. servers. Yes. And only people who own a domain name need worry about them. So you own potv.com, which means that the company you bought your domain name from, they run authoritative servers, and those authoritative servers are serving out your records for potv.com. Okay. So they're the ones that are serving the record that says potv.com resolves to IP address, blah, blah, blah. Exactly. And okay. the email for podfeet.com goes to these mail servers and all that kind of stuff. Okay. So that's the job of authoritative. Nice and easy. We're not going to, they have nothing to do with today's topic because home users who are entering something into a text field named DNS server on their router, on their iPhone, on their Mac, on their Windows PC, none of those places mean authoritative DNS server. Oh. They all mean the second kind of DNS server. Okay. They are talking about something called a DNS resolver. It doesn't even have the word server in it, and yet we call them DNS servers. Okay. DNS resolvers, their job is the opposite. The job of a DNS resolver is to find answers from authoritative servers. So a resolver's job is to figure out, okay, so Firefox wants to know the A record for podfeed.com. It's the job of the resolver to get that answer on behalf of Firefox. And so when you're typing into your router what DNS server it should use, what it really should say is DNS resolver. So but, would, would like a I said, correct description be a server that resolves DNS names? DNS no. queries. DNS queries. queries. So, okay. Right, so a DNS query has two parts. The domain name I want, I want and the type of record I want. So if I was... Thunderbird or Mail.app, I would want podfeet.com's MX record. If I was Firefox, I'd want www.podfeet.com's A record. If I was on the terminal and I was trying to figure out what the name is that goes with a certain IP address, then I would want the relevant PTO record. So it's always, you know, the domain name and the record type I want is, is what makes up a DNS query. So here's the name and this is the record type I want. Okay. So, so how does a name get resolved? It's actually quite a tedious process. So let's imagine that we're sitting in front of our computers and we type into our favorite browser, du jour, www.podfeet.com. And the browser needs to figure out what IP address it should go talk to. 
So how does it do that? Well, the first thing it does is it sends a request to whatever resolver it has configured saying, I would like the A record for www.podfeet.com. The client has, so explain that, the, the client has a DNS resolver. Right, and, so the client has been configured to use a resolver to do its and, DNS. And client, hopes. in this case, is a computer internal to your home network. So Kev, a, Kevin a is client at home. is a very generic word because it could be a light bulb. It could be any device connected to okay. the internet. Okay, but the but the uh, and the DNS resolver that has been uh, configured can be done a whole bunch of different ways. But we haven't gotten yes. into that yet, and we will talk about all the different ways because that's important. Okay, but yes, so okay, so for now, your it's... computer knows how to it knows where to send its DNS query. So when that DNS query is received, the resolver then has to start the job of answering that question. Oh, okay, you'd like this, okay. So the first thing it does is it goes to its list of root DNS servers. And these are hard-coded into every operating system, even in a light bulb. And they're a list of, I think it's 24 IP addresses that are the name server, the DNS servers, the authoritative DNS servers responsible for knowing the name servers for every single top-level domain. So they know the IP addresses that are responsible for COM. They know the IP address is responsible for net. They know the IP address is responsible for .ie, .be, .dk, .uk. You get the idea. Okay. So the root servers know all the top-level domains, and that's all they know. So, so, so when they invent a new one, um, like .movie, all, yes. all computers, all light bulbs, all door locks on the internet have to be no. changed to have that. No, no. The root servers have to learn... But that doesn't mean you need new root servers. The only time that the IP address is stored inside the light bulb has to change if, if someone were to create a new root server. I'm sorry. So the root I'm sorry. Servers, I thought you said the, that the devices knew that it had these root servers inside them. Were the root servers? Yes. The de- no, no. The, the devices have a list of IP addresses that are the root servers. Ah, gotcha. Okay. And there's only some... Oh, and that's one of the things that's fragile about it, right? Is there's only yes. 23 of them? 24 IP addresses. 24? Okay. Now, there's 24 IP addresses, but that actually is due to something called IP multicasting is hundreds and hundreds of actual physical servers. Right. There was a time in history when that was very fragile, but with multicast and stuff, that's not fragile anymore. I thought yes, one of it's them broke IP recently ad- and it was a little bit dicey for a few days. That's why I knew about it was... Well, anyway... Not as fragile a big enough denial of service could, in theory, start knocking them out. And what will happen is it'll happen for a region. So you could take out the 24 name servers for North America, but you couldn't do it planet-wide very easily. Okay. But taking out a continent or two is probably no good thing. <laughs> or two. <laughs> you know, maybe if it's Antarctica, it might be easy. Um, so... Your, your, the DNS resolver who you've asked this question of has a list of these 24 IP addresses um, and it will pick one at random and it will send your question to that root server. It's a dear root server, I am looking for the A record for www.podfeet.com. And the root server will say, I actually don't have an answer for you. However, I do know who's responsible for everything that comes under com. And so it replies with what's called a referral. So it replies with a list of NS records for COM. The resolver gets that list of whatever number of IP addresses for COM, picks one at random, then sends the query, hi, I'm looking for the A record for www.podfee.com to its randomly chosen COM server. 
The comm services, yeah, I don't know the answer to that question, but what I do know is that this handful of servers are responsible for podfeet.com. So it sends another referral. And then the resolver picks at random from the list of name servers for podfeet.com and says, hi, podfeet.com is server. Do you know who www.podfeet.com is? I want the A record, please. And finally, it goes, ah, I do know. It replies with the A record, and then the resolver replies back to the original client and says, here you go, here's what you're looking for. That's a lot of work. Yeah. By the way, so that is called resolution, and it, it's a big job. And that happens all the time. Uh, by the way, it was on uh, November 30th, 2015, that an attack on the root servers happened. I found a uh, Bruce, yeah. Bruce Schneier article about what happened. So there, yeah, there I since... thought I remembered something being going on about that. Yes. And since then, a lot of work has been put into hardening those. Okay. Uh, oh, it was approximately Mainly 5 million mines. queries per second went on during that the, during that interval. Anyway, okay. Yeah, yeah that's quite quite so, low to put on a poor, poor VIP addresses. So all these servers are chattering all over, all over the internet, selling, sending these records just because somebody wanted to, you know, go read an article on podfeed.com? Yes, with a caveat I'll explain in a moment. So the first little caveat I want to draw is that every DNS resolver does not necessarily do all of this work. A lot of DNS resolvers are so-called stub resolvers. And what they are is lazy sods who ask a real resolver to do the work on their behalf. And pretty much all of us have within our homes a stub resolver. It's called our home router. Our home router doesn't unless you reconfigure it, and I'm not even sure it's possible at all routers to reconfigure it. Our home routers expect you to tell them what resolver they should use. So your Mac may think that your router is its resolver, and it is, but all your router does is hand it off to your ISP's resolver, and your ISP's resolver does the actual work, answers to your router, which just answers straight back to your Mac. And so your Mac thinks, wow, this router's been really helpful. <laughs> In reality, all the router's done is handed the work off to somebody else, and that's called a stub resolver. Hmm. So the ones that do the real work are called recursive resolvers, or just recursors. And most DNS servers we meet in our homes are actually stubs who just hand the work off to somebody else. Okay. Now, the other thing that happens everywhere, so the thing I put a star next to a minute ago is caching. So there's an awful lot of work to resolve from scratch, www.podfeet.com. And the internet would collapse in a giant steaming heap if we did that every single time. So that's why at every step of the way, DNS records are cached. So there is a cache within Firefox. So if you go to podfeet.com and then you click on a link to an article in podfeet.com, it doesn't even bother asking the operating system, what was podfeet.com again? It's like, oh, I looked you up five seconds ago. Okay, I know what that is. And it just continues on. Um, the operating system will also cache the answer it got on behalf of Firefox so that if you then, if I then try to send an email to you, mail.app doesn't have to trigger the whole process again. Or rather, it does. It asks the operating system, but the operating system says, yeah, yeah, I looked it up for Firefox. It's here. Um, so there's another cache. And then your router, which is probably the stub resolver that you're, certainly the default scenario, and for now we'll, we'll talk about the default scenario. In the default scenario, your home router is the next step in the process. It's a stub resolver. It will have a cache. So if anyone else in your house has been to podfeet.com, then the process gets short-circuited at that point. And then if it's not cached at the stub resolver, it'll reach out to your ISP's true resolver 
But if anyone else who shares your ISP has looked up podfeed.com, again, it doesn't have any work to do because it's in the cache and so it can just return it to you. So you can imagine how many people in your street or in your ISP who look up google.com, right? That one's always <laughs> going to be cached. So an awful lot of DNS queries are cached at the ISP level. And finally, if that cache is missed, then unfortunately, all the donkey work has to be done <laughs> and the ISP's resolver does all the work and then caches it for the next person. Huh. So caches, caches everywhere. <laughs> DNS is a highly, highly cached service. Now, in theory, in theory, the length of time a record is cached is controlled by the owner of the domain. Not by the DNS server looking it up, not by the resolvers, by the owner of the domain. So when you answer, so when your authoritative server for podfeet.com answers my query, it says the IP address for podfeet.com is blah, keep this for so long. In other words, it gives what's called a time to live or TTL. I remember setting that. Answer. We messed around with that. Yes, because if you're going to move your website from one server to another, what you do... So norm, in the normal run of things, podfeed.com's IP address changes like every couple of years. So there's no point in stressing your authoritative servers with a short TTL of 30 seconds. So you might set your TTL to three days. But if you know you're going to move servers, then at least three days beforehand, reduce your TTL to 30 minutes or something, or maybe even five minutes. Right, right. I remember we did that. Yeah, then we move your hosting, we update your DNS record, the new one, you know, the old one has gone out with a short TTL for the last few days, so everyone's going to be checking back in really often. When you move your site, the actual downtime people experience will be tiny. And then when everyone's moved across and everything's settled in, drop the TTL back to where it came from, put it back up to three days or 24 hours or whatever it is you had it at before. So the TTL is theoretically under the control of the owner of the domain. However... There are some unscrupulous people generally working at ISPs who configure their resolvers to ignore the TTL they receive from the authoritative server and keep it for as long as they'd like because that makes their server have less work to do. It also makes the answers their server give often wrong. Yeah. Or more often wrong. And people refer to this as sticky caches. Okay. And ISPs are notorious for having sticky caches. Oh, okay. And you'll see this come up where, like, on you in your home net, when you're at home, the change you made to podfeed.com takes like 24 hours to show up. But on your iPhone connected to a cellular provider, it shows up instantly. Well, they don't have a sticky cache, and your ISP does have a sticky cache. I think Adam mm. was describing a situation where he updated a website recently, and his home internet was showing the wrong IP address for ages and ages, but his phone was showing <laughs> the right address, and it's because one had a sticky cache and one didn't. And I hate sticky caches, sticky caches are evil. So that is that um, the main thing that's wrong with using your uh, your ISP's DNS? No. Oh, oh the there's more main reasons. Your average <laughs> ISP's DNS is much longer than that. It is one of the things that makes me cranky, but it's so not the biggest problem. Well, I would think shot. the number one bad thing would be wrong. <laughs> it's got to be high okay, up. There is the something list. to be said for that. Yeah, I mean, slow and is it, it another one, make... but wrong is the worst. It's up there. There are worse things. There are worse <laughs> okay. things. Well, we'll debate it as we go through. Indeed. Okay. Now, another thing that a resolver gets to do is it does get to set what's called a max TTL. So a resolver, someone who runs a resolver can decide the cache stuff for less long than the official TTL. And that's entirely within the spec and legitimate. 
So a website can say, it's okay to cache me for five years. And the resolver can say, yeah, you know something? I'm going to cache you for my maximum, which is 24 hours. And the reason for doing that is because should someone succeed in sending a fraudulent DNS packet, which is way easier than it should be, those people who are faking the DNS packet, they're going to fake the TTL as well. And they're not going to pick a small one. Hmm. While, you're, while you're faking the packet, why not make your answer as sticky as possible and give a really, really long TTL? And so that's why a good DNS provider will have a short max TTL so that should they get poisoned, they'll excrete the poison very quickly. Oh, okay. Regardless of what the owner of the domain has said. is So the owner basically says how long you're allowed to cache and the resolver decides how long they actually cache. So the TTL and the max TTL control that. Okay, so by default, this is how your DNS is set up. And so I've included a diagram here for you to pop into the old show notes. So this is diagram number one. All right. And so on the normal run of things, you have... So we start in the bottom left corner. Let's explain one thing. There's going to be six separate diagrams he's going to refer to as we go through. And I'm hoping yes. we don't have to explain all, every detail of each one, but maybe you're going it, to—it'll get easier to read these as we go from one to the next. The only thing that's going to change is the arrows. Okay. Okay. So all the graphics stay still. The graphics are in a background layer that never moves, and what okay. changes is the arrows. Because as you reconfigure your DNS, the only thing that's changing is who's talking to who. The who doesn't change. Okay. All right. So we're. So uh, the, on, on graphic number one, now, in an audio podcast, I can't wait to hear how you're going to describe this. There's lots of lines so the, of arrows. So in the bottom left corner is your home network. And in okay. there is, I have blown up the insides of one computer as an example. So inside your computer, your operating system has an API which provides DNS lookups for all apps installed on your computer. So if, you know, mail that app needs the MX record for podfeed.com and ask the OS and the OS thing goes off and does its thing. If your browser needs it, it does its thing. And, you know, your other browser does its thing. And in theory, apps can have their own caches. Now, on the Mac, apps from Apple just use the operating system's cache. So mail.app will just use Mac OS X's cache. And Safari will use Mac OS X's cache, which is why Safari and Ping will always agree with each other. Whereas Firefox can have a different answer to Ping, depending on how TTLs work out, because Firefox does its own independent caching. That's just a by-the-by. So apps can cache if they want to. The operating system will definitely cache. The operating system will contain within it a configuration setting, which tells it what resolver it should use to answer all of these questions it's receiving through this API. And by default, that will be handed to your operating system by DHCP, the Dynamic Host Configuration Protocol. So you plug the network cable in or you turn on Wi-Fi. The first thing your Mac or PC or iPhone or light bulb will do is shout out to your home network, hello, is there a DHCP server out there? And if so, help. And the DHCP server, which will be your router, will answer back and say, sure, no problem. Use this IP address, use this netmask, use me as your gateway. Oh, yes, and I'm also your DNS resolver. Thank you very much. And off goes your Mac or your PC or your light bulb. Okay. So when it receives a request, it hands it to your home router, which is a stub resolver. Right. So when you turned on your home router for the first time, your home router did something very, very similar. It shouted to your ISP's network, help, I'm new here. I have no idea what to do. Tell me what to do. And your ISP's DHCP server told your router how it should configure itself. 
And so it will have been told to use the ISP's DNS server as its resolver. So Firefox talks to the OS, talks to your router, talks to your ISP resolver. Let me, let me stop ISP's you real quick. Somewhere in there your modem was involved, or is that just transcoding signals, nothing to do with... No DNS involved. There. Okay, okay. Gotcha. That's just making the packets go. I don't. Okay. I don't want to go into that level because oh, that'll make us. That'll make it very sore. <laughs> okay. Um, and your ISP's resolver is going to do the work. So those eight steps I talked about: talking to the root servers, and then the com servers, and then the pod. That's all okay. done by your ISP. Your ISP answers to your router. Your router answers to your operating system. Your operating system answers to the app. Okay. And caching at all points along the way. Uh. That works for your mobile devices, that works for your IoT devices, that works for every computer and device on your network. All right. If you happen to be in a coffee shop, something spectacularly similar happens. But instead of it being your home router, it's the router powering the public Wi-Fi in the coffee shop or the hotel or whatever you're having yourself. It's the coffee shop's ISP that's doing the work, but really it's, it's a parallel picture, which is why the two halves of the diagram are exactly the same as each other. And then sitting out there somewhere on the internet are the authoritative DNS servers that actually have all the answers and they're what the recursors talk to, whether it's your ISP's recursor or Starbucks's ISP's recursor. Same okay. thing is happening. So that's all there is in the first diagram. Okay, there's a lot of stuff you didn't explain, like question mark, lock, DNS, sec. That's okay. Okay, we'll come that's back okay. to that. That's okay. We'll come back to that. Let's not confuse okay. people. All right. Ah, okay now. A lock icon implies security problems. So, next heading in the show notes, security problems. <laughs> the domain name system is old. It is very old. It comes from a literally more innocent time. A time when security threats on the internet were abstract hypotheticals that nerds discussed over coffee. They didn't happen in the real world. They were thought experiments. You say in the show notes where the internet contained only good people. <laughs> yeah. There was such a time. Okay. I think there were five of them. <laughs> and then I went to hell in a handcart shortly afterwards. But anyway. <laughs> so there are three major security problems with, at least with the original DNS system. And to some extent, none of these problems have been fully solved. But we have made strides towards making all of them not as horrific as they used to be. But none the same. None of them are fully solved. So the first thing is there is no guarantee of authenticity. So DNS, to be efficient, because it has, there's lots of queries have to be sent, DNS uses something called UDP. And UDP is like the postcard of the internet. There is no three-way handshake to make sure that you're establishing a connection, that the two people on each end of the conversation are who they say they are. You can trivially easily spoof a UDP packet as easily as you can send a postcard with someone else's return address on it. So that's all a UDP packet is. It just lives in isolation. So that means that anyone can create a UDP packet pretending to come from any server. And so when you receive a DNS response, you really don't know for sure that it came from who you think it came from. So there is hmm. no guarantee of the authenticity of the response you receive. Okay. There is no guarantee of the integrity of the response you receive. Even if the packet originated from who you think it came from, Anyone in between could have tweaked it a bit, changed a one to a zero somewhere, or maybe just changed the IP address completely so that you go off to evilhacker.com when you think you're at google.com. Sure. So the integrity of the message is completely not guaranteed. And then there's the one that we care about a lot in recent weeks because of Facebook and all that stuff. There is a complete absence of confidentiality. The DNS protocol is 100% 
plain text. So even mm. if a man in the middle, even if the packet came from the, the person you think it came from, and no one in between tweaked it in any way whatsoever, everyone in between can still see it. So they know what you asked, uh, who you asked it of, and what the answer was. So imagine you're on an HTTPS website. The actual website is completely encrypted, so no one in the middle can see what you're doing on your bank's website. But because of DNS, everyone in between knows you've been to your bank. Oh, okay. But they don't know. Do they know when I've switched from the bill pay tab to the check my balance nope. tab? Nope, because it's no, unless they're on different domains, no. Okay. So all they know is the domains you looked up. Okay. But they do know I went to bartsbank.ie. Yeah, and maybe even you went from www.bartsbank to business.bartsbank, and then you went to personal.bartsbank. So you clearly have two accounts, a business account and a personal account. So the domain okay. names leaking out can give away more than you might think. Hmm. Okay. But it is, it is quote-unquote, just the domain names that leak out. But if, you know, let's say that you're in a society where certain things are illegal and you go to certain websites people may know that you have a gambling habit in a country where gambling is illegal or that you love whiskey in a country where alcohol is illegal or that you, you know, you're a man into men in a country where man into men is illegal. Your domain names is maybe all it needs. You know, jameson.com. Oh, whiskey. Right, right, right. So that's not good. So let's look at these three in a bit more detail. So authenticity. Uh, authenticity has been is the most well-protected against of all of these problems. And the reason is Dan Kaminsky. And that's now been about a decade ago since the Kaminsky vulnerability came out. But since then, we have largely dealt with the authenticity problem uh, because we've done something called source port randomization. So all DNS packets go to port 53. That's the DNS port. But the from port can be anything you like. And so the way modern DNS result or DNS clients work is they pick a random source port that's truly random and they will only believe an answer if the source port coming back in the answer matches the randomly chosen one they chose. So in order to spoof a DNS packet, you now have to guess thousands and thousands and thousands of answers. And your guess has to arrive before the real answer arrives. So it's much, much, much harder for someone who's not a man in the middle to spray you with enough packets to actually poison your cash. Hmm. Okay. Right. Now, a man in the middle is not defeated by source port randomization because the man in the middle can see the source port. So it's not easy to fake something you can see. So source port randomization stops random people on the internet sending you false DNS responses, but the man in the middle is still a problem. But nonetheless, dealing with everyone on the planet who's not a man in the middle is a Damn improvement over everyone on the internet being able to send you fake DNS responses. Okay. All right. So good. Uh, when, yeah. When it comes to integrity, we're, getting, we're making strides too. There is a technology called DNSSEC. I've heard and of what that, DNSSEC does is it adds digital signatures to the answers. So it cryptographically signs the answer, which means that if it's tampered with, you know it's been tampered with. You can't tell what it was before it was tampered with, but that doesn't really matter. You have a way of knowing, oh, this packet is not how it was at the point it left the authoritative server. So basically, the authoritative server has a private key. It uses a public key to sign all of its answers. There's a mechanism for securely distributing the public keys. The recipient 
of the packet that claims to come from the authoritative server, you can do some cryptography and you can basically give a thumbs up. Yes, this is how it left. No, this is not how it left. Therefore, I have been spoofed. So DNSSEC provides a very useful functionality. However, DNSSEC is oh so many millions miles away from being fully rolled out. Ah. And the main reason for this is because key management is a gigantic pain in the backside. So if you are running whitehouse.gov, it is well worth you putting in that effort. And in fact, almost all of .gov has DNSSEC enabled these days. So anything .gov pretty much has DNSSEC turned on. But your average person, bartb.ie, podfeet.com, we do not have the energy, time, et cetera, et cetera, to deal with the absolute pain in the backside that is DNSSEC key management. So the vast, vast majority of domains of the internet are not signed. So DNSSEC can't help. Okay. The other issue is that doing cryptography is hard. And I don't mean in the sense of math is hard. I mean in the sense of it takes many CPU cycles and much RAM. And so DNS is all about efficiency. And ISP's resolvers are all about doing, you know, keeping as many people as possible happy with as little effort as possible and the smallest electricity bill as possible so they have sticky caches. Do you think they're going to throw CPU and RAM at doing DNSSEC? Probably not. (laughs) So while the authoritative servers... Yeah. So while the authoritative servers for important domains like governments and financial institutions may sign their records... That doesn't mean you're getting any benefit from it if your resolver isn't doing the work to actually verify the signatures. So DNSSEC, is a, it's a fully adopted standard. It does exist in the real world. It's just uh, someone doing the um, Let's Encrypt equivalent of DNSSEC to make it easy. And then it might just become ubiquitous. But for now... It's out there, but it's not protecting even like 5% of the internet. So but there's hope for there. the future, but not today. Precisely. And the most important stuff is protected. So at least we're, at least there's progress. We're on the way. Okay. Uh, I'm going in reverse order of how well we've done this. So the last one then is confidentiality. So source port randomization doesn't help your confidentiality. DNSSEC does not help your confidentiality. The answer is still in plain text. It's just verifiably true. That hasn't protected your confidentiality at all. Right, right. It's just, it might be right, but you don't know, but people still know what it is. Exactly. They now know it's right, but they don't, they still see everything you've looked up. So you haven't solved your, you know, gambling in countries where gambling is illegal problem. Um, or being in the closet in places where that's a good idea. So, there are two technologies, well, there's three technologies I want to talk to you when it comes to confidentiality. So there's two problems here. So the easiest problem to solve, and the one we have mostly solved, is that in order to make it possible for a DNS server to give you a local answer, so we have content delivery networks, which means that if I'm in Ireland and I look up Netflix.com, I get back a different IP address to you in California looking up Netflix.com. How's that possible? Right. The reason it's possible is because when you're, when a recur, when a resolver looks up the answer for you, it includes the IP address of the person asking the question. 
And that way, Netflix's authoritative service can give a different answer for people in a, with an American IP address versus a European IP address. And therefore, content delivery networks can do clever things and always send you to a server that's near to you. And always make sure you can't watch whatever it is you wanted to go watch. Yeah, that too. <laughs> now, that's a massive privacy problem there. Because every domain name you go to, whether or not you use a VPN, uh, if the resolver is being honest and passing through the headers the spec says it's supposed to, it's actually just passed through your IP address. Oh, as part right. of the DNS headers. Right. So there is a new technology which is actually in pretty darn wide deployment called eDNS. And what it is, is a, it's a specification that everyone has agreed on where IP addresses get truncated according to a set of rules in such a way that actual IP addresses are not sent, but enough of the bits are sent that you can work out what country and state the person is in. Oh, okay. So they can still keep you from getting the content you want, but they're not going to send your IP address in the clear. Exactly. Now, the other way to look at it is they can also send you to the local CDN so your load times are way quicker. But you can also take the more cynical view that they can also filter you. That does appear to be their objective, in my opinion. <laughs> but anyway, well, no. So a CDN like Cloudflare, their whole, their whole, the service they, the, the the service they charge their customers a lot of money for is delivering delivering websites really fast, okay. and they are absolutely using those IP addresses to do that. So there are there are lots and lots and lots of people using. Uh, you know, it's content delivery networks to deliver sure. content quickly. Sure. Uh, actually, your your VPN service does that as well, right? Mine does. It says, do you want the closest one? Yes. Yes, exactly. Actually, yes, you're right. Yeah, of course. Because that, again, will make it more efficient if, you, if you're using, rather than sending your traffic all the way around the world, send it somewhere close by. Lots and lots and lots of things want to do that. So, yeah. And so eDNS gives us, it lets us have our cake and eat it. Basically, we can have our efficiency cake and we can eat our privacy cake or vice versa, <laughs> whatever way you want to put that. But we get to do both. Uh, now, all I know is now I want cake. I'd love some too. Um, there is one teeny tiny caveat. Your resolver has to actually implement eDNS. Your resolver has to actually strip out bits of your IP address before passing it on. Uh, and do you want to guess which kind of people would generally not bother their backsides doing such modern things? Uh, let me guess. My ISP. Most probably. Okay. Many, many ISPs don't bother with these newfangled technologies. But it's a standard that's out there. It's an active use it's, you know, it is real. It is, it is available. But again, that doesn't answer the anonymity problem. A man in the middle still sees everything. Therefore, what we actually need is encryption for DNS. What we need to do is take the DNS protocol and wrap it in encryption. HTTP is unencrypted and the original. HTTPS is just encryption wrapped around HTTP. FTP was the original. SFTP is just encryption wrapped around FTP. So we need to do the same for DNS. Sounds straightforward. Well, it isn't because of UDP and all sorts of other stuff. <laughs> However, just because it's not straightforward doesn't mean we're not working on it. Unfortunately, we're kind of at the early stages. So there isn't one answer on the horizon. There are two possible answers on the horizon. One, both or neither of which may turn out to be the actual final answer. So we're very, very experimental here. So the two technologies are DNS over TLS, which doesn't have a funky acronym that I have come across. And the one that is marginally ahead, DNS over HTTPS, which has the wonderful name DOH or DOH. 
So DNS over HTTPS. <laughs> they actually named it that? They actually named it DOH. <laughs> capital D, small O, capital H. Somebody's having fun with that. So there, So again, there's hope. There's something coming. Yes. Now, the thing with these is they like a VPN doesn't encrypt end-to-end. It encrypts between certain endpoints. Both of these wrappers will also only wrap at certain endpoints. So diagrams, well, they're numbered five and six in the show notes, but they will be the second and third diagram, show you some possible ways that DOH could provide protection. So if you want to skip to the one you have as labeled diagram five, listeners will just be able to see it in the show notes in place. So the way that DOH is available Actually, to you Bart, today... Um, this may not affect the audience at all, but uh, my Finder oh. has actually locked up when I tried to oh. open that. So I am going to restart my Finder, and hopefully that's not going to make me lose my recording. Right? Well, I'm listening to you, and if it does go, I will hit save on mine. Yeah. Okay. So I'm going to restart my Finder here. In theory, I'm going to. Nope. And it did this quite a while ago. Nope. I can't even get a... Uh, that's interesting. I can't even get a force quit window to open up. Would you want me to drop it into the ch- our back channel and yeah, continue that, on? Yeah, that's a good way to do it. Okay, so give me a sec here. So I've never had the finder where I can't get a... Uh, actually, wait a minute. Now that I'm not in the finder, there we go. Hang on. I might still be able to do it. Yeah, there we go. Finder not responding. Relaunch. Oh, you know what? I think it just... It just, just opened up. Hey, okay. Unless that's because you, no, it just finally resolved. Wow. That, I, I waited like four minutes before he told you that thinking, okay, it'll eventually come back. All right. So I'm looking at diagram some... five now. Okay. So the, the, the first way we're likely to meet DOH is as a plugin to Firefox or as native support in browsers because Chrome are working on it and Firefox are working on it. So what that means is all the arrows are exactly the same as they were in the default situation, except there's a new arrow between Firefox and a third-party DNS server with support for DOH. And so you can have security between your browser and the websites you visit, but it won't affect your email client and it won't affect anything else happening on any other device, but at least your browsing will be encrypted. So hang on, hang on. You've got an arrow going directly from Firefox to this third-party DNS resolver that's out on the internet. How did that not go through my router? Because Firefox, using Firefox, is is choosing not to use the operating system's DNS API. It is instead choosing to create a DOH tunnel to whatever you have configured inside Firefox, and Firefox is sending its DNS queries through the tunnel instead of to the operating system. And okay, no so I, I think I just figured out something important about your diagram. You're not saying that the network traffic doesn't go through my, my router. You're saying it's not going through the, the DNS stub resolver. Yes. Yes. So this these diagram is DNS queries. This is all about DNS. Not a network flow. Nothing about. Okay. I mean, it might be coincidence with network flow, but that's what you're saying. So it's still going through my router in a network sense, but it's just tunneling right out there and jumping straight to the DNS resolver, a third-party DNS resolver. Like say one dot one dot one dot one that we'll be talking about later, because it has DOH support as it happens. Interesting. And Firefox has DOH support on the way, so this is actually realistic within the next few weeks. However. Your IoT devices, unprotected. You're still using Safari on your mobile devices, unprotected. Your mail client, unprotected. Like, it, unpro- you know, it is only your browser, and only if it's Firefox or Chrome. It's better than nothing, but that's all it is. Uh, but it is plausible that we will be in a situation in the not 
quite so distant future where your router will have a DOH client installable. So maybe it'll involve installing DWRT. That's the one. I always forget how many Ds there are. So with third-party router firmware, you'll probably be able to do this within a few months. And at that stage, you're in a much better situation because it's not your, you're not relying on your browser to do it. Your router can do it for you. And so everything within your house is then going through DOH. But as soon as you leave your house, things are back to the way they were. But at least in your house, everything's going through DOH. So that's plausible by the end of the year. That's progress. Interesting. But that will be nerdy fun. So if you're in for some geekery, you can start playing with DOH today. But you are playing with cutting-edge, unfinished standards <laughs> with beta implementations. Have fun. <laughs> so you're not going to do it? I didn't say that, but I'm just saying <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not recommending this is what everyone read, jump out and do immediately because that would be a terrible idea. So you have uh, diagrams five and six. Diagram five is where Firefox goes off and goes to this DOA server on its own. Uh, mm -hmm. Six is where... Your router is the DOH client. And so what's disintermediated is your ISP. Okay. And that, that's the case so, of where maybe you put DDWRT in it. Yes, exactly. Okay. So that means everything coming out of your house is, in, is nicely encrypted all the way out to 1.1.1.1 or whoever you're using as your DOH supporting third-party resolver. Okay. And your ISP is just out of the picture, which is no bad thing, as we'll discover shortly. So what's wrong with the default setup we've been talking about all along? And why, why, why go to the effort of changing the default? The one that most people will notice is speed and reliability. DNS lookups happen all the bloody time. If they're slow, you can have a 200 megabit a second internet connection that feels like treacle because the DNS responses are slow. Because right. until you get the answer to what IP address to connect to, your browser is stuck waiting. Your mail client is stuck waiting. Your FTP client is stuck waiting. Your SSH client is stuck waiting. Nothing can do anything until the bloody DNS comes back. So if your DNS is sluggish, the world's fastest internet will feel awful. So speed and reliability is the most common push factor away from your ISP's DNS server because it just feels in, it just feels slow and sluggish and ick. The next one is accuracy. They tend to have really bloody sticky DNS servers, and that may make you cranky. They also tend not to bother with security stuff like DNSSEC or any of this kind of fancy fun stuff. And then you have a potential conflict of interest and or a lack of trust or confidence. Depending on where you are in the world, it is possible that your ISP's business model is very straightforward. I am a service provider selling a service to you, my customer. Therefore, I am entirely out to protect you. There are, however, ISPs who, in order to reduce prices, sell their customers so they can make money from two ends. At that point, you have a conflict of interest because your ISP is now trying to profile you so they can sell access to you to advertisers. That's not good. Right. Now, again, so it's up to you to decide if your ISP has a conflict of interest you're not comfortable with. There is no general rule on that. It is just a potential reason you may not like things the way they are by default. I also need to mention one actually, other thing. Uh, it accuracy. actually makes me thinking about, uh, isn't it in, in India where Facebook wants to give everybody, you know, free internet? Free internet. Yes. <laughs> in the third world, Facebook want to give everyone free internet. Yeah. Well, developing world, I believe, is what the uh, correct phraseology is these days. Oh, I, I, I forget what the, the, what the term is. Yeah. It keeps changing. 
developing. I'm too old. Back in my day. Anyway. Um, I have grey hairs in my beard. I'm allowed to say that now. All right. You're officially part of the cool kids then. Yes. Uh, I do need to go back to one other thing on accuracy. So sticky caches are a problem, but there is another problem because ISPs have another really bad habit. In theory, according to the DNS specification, if someone tries to look up a domain name that does not exist, so bleepbloop.podfeet.com, the answer that will come back from the authoritative server responsible for the parent domain will be, that domain does not exist. It's an affirmative statement that the domain does not exist. So it's not a failure to resolve. It's a successful resolution that tells you the domain doesn't exist. And that's in DNS language called an NX domain response for non-existent domain. Okay. ISPs, in order to advertise at you, will receive an NX domain, throw it in the bin, construct a fraudulent A response, (laughs) put the IP address of one of their servers on it and send it back so they can serve you ads. I really think that. I really think bleepbloop.padfeet.com should exist, and it's kind of an oversight that it doesn't. I was thinking the same thing, because I use it as an example later on. I'm thinking, I'm going to come back to these notes a month from now, and bleepbloop.padfeet.com is going to go somewhere funny, like <laughs> ha-ha bark or something. Okay, so that's the one last thing. I We've been working together reasons, a long time. <laughs> yeah. So there are push factors, right? There are reasons that your ISP could drive you away from using them. There's also pull factors. There are things offered by some of the third-party resolvers that are just cool. So as well as your ISP driving you away, 1.1.1.1 or quad 9 or 8.8.8.8 may pull you towards them as well. So some of the value adds they can offer are content filtering. So a third party could give you like a little menu where you get to choose, I want every gambling site, every porno site, and every site that mentions alcohol to return an NX domain. Even if they do exist, if those domains do those things, return an NX domain. That's content filtering. Okay, and NX domain was the non-existent domain. Yeah, which is the opposite of what your ISPs are doing. Right. Okay, right, right, right. So basically, you try to go to, you know, bigdoodas.com, and instead it says, no, that domain doesn't exist. But I know it exists. My friends told me that was the absolute best whatever site. (laughs) Is this this sort of what OpenDNS does? Or is it open not DNS? sort of, not not sort of exactly. Okay. What open DNS does. Okay. Yes. And that's a way. If, uh, if you want other, a content filter to your house, you don't want your kids looking at porn or whatever. You can you can turn that on. Exactly. Okay. And so it's going to return with that domain doesn't exist. NX domain for any domain that are listed as pornos or gambling or whatever it is you've told Open DNS you want filtered. Let, let me ask works. a question. Uh, maybe this is an obvious answer, and this is already exactly what's going on. But let's say um, I'm the the king of uh, Allison's country, and mm-hmm. I decide that I don't want to ever have anything uh, from Ireland get into my country. Can I just? Mm-hmm. I, and since I'm a dictator, I am going to declare that all DNS resolvers send NX domain responses to anything that comes from .ie. Is yeah, absolutely, it, you could do that. Is that how, like, the Great Firewall of China works? It is one of the mechanisms okay. that is often used for censorship. Cool. I mean, not cool, but cool. Not cool. <laughs> yeah, it is, it is definitely one of the mechanisms used to censor people is NX domain responses. Fraudulent, effectively, NX domain responses. So content filtering is lying with DNS intentionally in your interest. Sending you to ads is lying not in your interest. So intent matters. 
Very similar to content filtering is malware protection. There are third-party resolvers who make it their business to track the domain names used by malware and to annex domain malware domains. So known domains used for distributing malware, whether it be to distribute the malware or act as command and control for the malware. Basically, domain names associated with nasty stuff. Just annex domain all of those. So that's malware protection through DNS. Isn't that a, a game of whack-a-mole they have to play to do that? Yes. But at least they're Absolutely. the only ones is, who would have to do it? Exactly. You're okay. outsourcing whack a moling Yeah. Okay. <laughs> and then the last one is that they may offer added security features and future-proofing that your ISP may not. For example, just about every third-party DNS server does do DNSSEC. Many of them are experimenting with DNS over TLS or DOE, DNS over HTTPS. And some of them are also using very advanced features to proactively check their caches to make sure they're to to detect all sorts of poisoning and all sorts of different kinds of attack that may have caused a bad record to sneak in. So they're doing very clever things in the back end, some of these third party uh, resolvers. So there are pull factors that may encourage you to go actively seek out a third party DNS provider. So we have pushes and we have pulls. Okay. So they're, let's say we so our ISPs are pushing us away. Yeah. And these uh third party resolvers are pulling us towards them. Yeah. That is, I mean it is I really think that's a good way to describe the, the dynamic at play because and depending on how cranky you get and how, how cool the offering is, you may or may not decide to go for it. But let's assume for the rest of this conversation that you have decided I don't like my ISP's DNS, I want to choose a third party provider. So I hope Well now this, we're at the actual I hope in this you'll get into what is their conflict of interest in trying to get us to Oh, go there. yes. Okay, good. Oh, yes. That is compl- that, if that doesn't play into your decision, you're doing it wrong. <laughs> Seriously. So I cut you um, off. We're so finally now... Answering the question I set out to answer, because now I'm in a position to give you answers that make sense. Okay, and the question you want to answer is, which third-party DNS uh, provider should I choose? Exactly. So we have now decided, I don't like my ISP. I want to try one of these third-party offerings. And there's four of them that are ahead of the pack by a million and one miles. And so I'm going to look at each of the four one by one. Okay. And the the great thing is, each one of the four has a different primary focus. Ah, okay. So depending on your priorities, this actually could be a really easy decision. Thank goodness. (laughs) Okay. So the oldest player in this game by a million and one miles is OpenDNS. They were doing this before it was the cool thing to do. And unfortunately, they used to be a really cool company who were very transparent and very open and had a really good service. And then Cisco bought them. And now their website is a corporate pile of poop with no actual information of any use to any human being. Okay. Which is damnable disappointing because I can't tell you if they support DNSSEC or not because I tried to find the answer to that and I couldn't. I can't tell you if they support DNS over TLS or if they plan to. Can't find it on their website. Can't find it in their search. I, I searched their support forums. Can't find it anywhere. Very annoying. Um, anyway, so OpenDNS are a for-profit corporation. They were independent, but are now owned by Cisco, who are a giant big company. They, they, their business model is very straightforward. They have a freemium DNS service that they sell. So it's free. So basic functionality for home users is free, and everything else is paid for. So if you want fancy pants features, even as a home user, hand over your checkbook or your credit card number, let's be honest. If you're a corporation, just give us your money straight up front. If you're a small business, they might be a small free tier. I'm not 
I don't remember offhand, but basically it's freemium service. So it's not that they're doing DNS to monetize you in some other way. No, no. They sell DNS. That is their business. So yes, they're for profit, but there's no conflict of interest here. They're just straight up selling you the thing you want. Right? Okay. Uh, This also means it's in their interest to make you a happy camper because you are the customer. You're not the product. You're the customer. So that's a good thing. Okay. That is a good thing. Um, Unfortunately, from a technical point of view, I can tell you that in the past, they were superb. And in the past, they were very much at the forefront of all the modern, uh, the then modern technologies like DNSSEC and stuff. But right now, as of today, I cannot tell you how up to date they are with the modern state of the art because they've taken all that kind of nerdy detail off their website. Couldn't even find an intelligible privacy policy, which means they're in GDPR trouble a few weeks from now. Yeah. The only thing I can tell you is they do not improperly return NX domain. So they use NX domain to block the stuff you've asked them to block, but they do not use NX domain to send you to ads when you look up a domain that actually doesn't exist. And the reason I know this is not because their website told me, it's because I used a terminal to prove it to myself. (laughs) And so as an interesting little aside, I can teach you how to do the same test. The command you want is the dig command. So you say dig space a domain name that you know does not exist. So in this case, for now, bleep bloop or bloop bleep dot podfeet.com space, the at symbol, and then the IP address of the DNS server you'd like to test. Hmm. And if you just hit enter, you'll get a massive big load of output. But the only thing you care about is whether or not one of the lines of output contains the magic phrase NX domain. So if you pipe that to grep NX domain, all one word in all caps, and if that search returns at least one line of text, then they are correctly returning NX domain. If that returns zero lines of text, then they're doing it wrong. Then they are not telling you a non-existent domain doesn't exist. And they did it right. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And they did it right. Open DNS do it right. So I can tell you that historically they were superb and that they don't do the NX domain thing wrong. But that's the extent of all you can tell us. Yeah, because their website sucks. And I'm really disappointed at how far downhill open DNS have gone since Cisco took them over. Makes Mm -hmm. me genuinely sad. However, their primary focus is filtering. So if you have a family with small kids and you, what you care about more than anything else is that their internet access is filtered, literally the name of the product they give you for free is called Family Shield. That tells you where this company's focus is. Right, right, right. This is a filtering DNS provider. So if filtering matters, even though I've said I don't like what Cisco have done to them, I would still say go have a look at their site because they're offering what you probably want. And and it is this, uh, just taking out adult content that's free. Yes. So that's so good. for free you don't get to customize it very much. Well, there's a, there's a second level of free. Says our classic free service with customizable filtering and identity theft protection. So there are okay, two so, levels. Okay, so Okay, so there's two free levels, and then you get into the paid level. Yeah. Which is pretty good, actually. You know, yeah. Freemium goes, that was pretty good. Yeah. And to, you know, their big money comes from their big corporates, right? Right. The next players to jump into the market were Google. And Google had a very different problem to solve. Google were not interested in filtering content. The problem Google was having was that there were so many poor DNS resolvers that the internet was more slow and more annoying to use than it needed to be, and Google actually did the math on how many dollars they were losing from missed advertising indentation and impressions uh-huh. because people's internet was slow. 
So they figured out that it was in their financial interest to have a free fast DNS service so they could show more ads more quickly. I kind of love them for that. <laughs> That's pretty honest, right? It's pretty honest. Um, there is also zero evidence that has ever been presented by anyone that Google are doing anything undesirable with the logs from their DNS service. In fact, they're very explicit about it on the website for their public DNS service. And I will quote them directly. We built Google Public DNS to make the web faster and to retain as little information about usage as we could while still being able to detect and fix problems. Google Public DNS does not permanently store personally identifiable information. That is what Google say outright in black and white. So I have no reason to disbelieve them. But I will say that that's no guarantee of future performance because the conflict, the potential conflict of interest is real here. Google's business model is to profile people and sell access to those people to advertisers. DNS is a potentially very lucrative source of data for profiling. So the temptation will always exist for them to change their mind and to start using that data. I don't think they are. In fact, I'm pretty sure they're not. In the future, at any moment, there is an incentive there for them to change their mind, and that incentive can't go away. So that is a niggle, but it's not more than a niggle. And for many, many years, me, paranoid me, used 8.8.8.8. Yeah, yeah, and, and I've been using it for years, but you're, you're right. What is their motivation? And uh, I do believe they want us to get to their ads quickly. Yeah, no, I, I do believe their original reasoning because they actually, when they when they launched the service, they actually provided the maths to back it up. Basically, we make money by people surfing the web. If they surf faster, we make more money, and they proved it, which I which I love. Uh, the other thing I can say is that while their primary focus has always been speed, right? Google's the problem Google set it to solve was speed, and they did it very well. But they have always because they're they're a company full of clever nerds they have always also innovated on the security front so they've always been doing clever things like using the vast knowledge they have to look out for suspicious activity in their caches and proactively purge weird things that sneak into their cache and i can tell you that today they continue to do clever things to protect their cache they do support dnssec they do support edns and they do support doe dns over https and okay, of course, good. that's no surprise because Chrome is one of the browsers that's pushing DOH. Okay, good. I can also tell you from direct experimentation that they correctly respond with NX domain when you look up a non-existent domain. Cool. Okay, and, uh, so before, the next players... Before you move on to the next players, um, I got the idea to try to do some searching on OpenDNS myself to see if they had DNSSEC. Um, okay, good. I, I'm, I'm seeing some people saying DNS crypt which is an open source um, method, is supposed to be similar to DNSSEC? No, DNSCrypt is an early attempt at what DOH and DNS over TLS are now trying to do, and DNSCrypt went nowhere. Uh, OpenDNS tried to make DNSCrypt go. Well, they've still got a page on it. I'm, that is, their support uh, I, from 11 months ago. I looked in the last year. Yeah, well, I guess there's still someone trying to make that standard go, okay. but that is, okay. so far, that is that is a dead end. And I am seeing them saying, no, 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 you don't need DNSSEC. DNSCrypt is the way to go. So that's probably well, why DNS you could find... Assuming it ever actually worked, would definitely be better because it would be encryption as well as digital signatures and stuff. Except it, it got abandoned or... 
I won't say it's fully abandoned, but it is not winning the race. <laughs> it's Betamax. Okay. Might even be better, but it's Betamax. All right. Good. Glad I asked before we moved on, just in case it was something real, but uh, I think I've confirmed the same thing you found. All right. Who else we got? Okay, so the next players, this is about, what, six months ago or so? It was big news when a new player joined the market. Quad9, and they had a cool name. So Quad9 is the name of the service, and the IP address is 9.9.9.9. So Quad9 is run by something called the Global Cyber Alliance, which is a non-profit which was founded by law enforcement agencies and security researchers, and which is paid for by the security industry. So it's security industry, academia, and law enforcement together set up a non-profit called the Global Cyber Alliance. And they're, they're, the um, mission statement for this non-profit is to make the internet safer for everyone. So the idea they had is that they would combine the knowledge that all of these people have, so academics and security researchers and law enforcement, combine all that information to build the ultimate blacklist of evil domains and then to filter them out. So remember you said the whack-a-mole? Right. This is a coalition of mole whackers. <laughs> right? If we all work Security together. researchers, AV vendors, and law enforcement together whacking all the moles they can. That is the primary focus of Quad9, to block known malware. They also happen to be quite fast. And their privacy policy is wonderfully succinct, explicit, and assuming they're not lying, perfect. So let me quote you directly. Quad9 gives anonymized telemetry back to the companies who, TI providers they call them, but basically the industry partners, the Nortons, the McAfee's. Oh, I was just about to change that to IT providers, right? I'm glad you said that was correct. No, it's not. It is genuinely TI providers. All right, I'll let you start the quote over. Sorry. Okay, actually, to be honest, before I read the quote, I need to say one more thing. So I'm, I'm glad you stopped me because, right. So it's obvious that law enforcement would be interested in making things safer. Like there are all sorts of public safety things done by law enforcement. That is not surprising. It's also obvious that security researchers would be interested in getting involved in something like that because they're researchers, they're academics. Why would for-profit companies like, you know, the McAfee's of this world, why would they want to get involved? Well, the answer is because they get something in return. And what they get in return is statistics on the amount of times each malicious domain is blocked. So they don't get told who tried to go there. What they get told is there were 500 attempts to go to this block domain today. And what that gives the security companies is a real-time thermometer, barometer, whatever, of which of the many things that could be causing trouble on the internet are actually causing trouble on the internet. So which of the, which of the viruses that are out there are being actively exploited? Uh, okay. So it's not a privacy problem because they never get told who's doing what. The only thing they get told is that there are so many people go or so many devices attempting to connect to this known command and control server. And that, that then tells the antivirus companies stuff they really care about, like which viruses are doing real harm today in the actual real world. So that's how it works. It's kind of, it's, 
it's a good way of having positive incentives instead of perverse incentives. So yeah, that, that, yeah. follow the money and it works out pretty good. I like it when the motivation is so in the right direction. Yeah. So let me read the quotes from Quad 9's FAQ and all this stuff. So Quad 9 gives anonymized telemetry back to the TI providers only for the malicious domains they share with Quad 9. This telemetry does not include source IP information of the users. In other words, your IP address isn't in that data. And then the privacy policy is really beautifully clear. We store details of DNS, we store details of DNS records, query timestamps, and the city, state, and country from where the query came. We do not store the source IP of the end user of the queries. Quad9 does not and never will share any of this data with marketers, nor will it use this data for demographic analysis. Our purpose is fighting cybercrime on the internet and to enable individuals and entities to be more secure. Wow. That's it right there. Yeah, that's what I want to hear, right? <laughs> so the primary focus of Quad9 is security. And it's done by professional security people. Now, there is one potential caveat here that may drive people away. Law enforcement agencies. If you don't trust law enforcement agencies, then you don't trust Quad9. You know, I think I've been been watching this stuff too long now that my first uh, response when you said law enforcement agencies was, like, why would they be helping us be more secure? Wait, no, that is their job. <laughs> that is their actual job, yes. Yeah. But it's been a long time since we've heard them in that context, right? Yes. So Which I just is want unfortunate, because it's probably most of it is that. But anyway. Yes. And that brings us down to the actual news that happened on April 1st. And we'll see why April 1st was Wait, chosen. Did you already say the part about Quad9 correctly returning NX domain and supporting all the goodies? Oh, I think I'm you terribly that. sorry. I completely did skip that. Okay, so Quad9 does do the NX domain thing properly. It does do DNSSEC. It does do eDNS. It does do DNS over TLS. Excellent. So they're backing that horse. Oh, but okay, no, so now no, come, no dough? No dough. So, right, so DNS over TLS and DOH are kind of the two, they're the Betamax and the VHS, but we're okay. still in the stage where no one knows who's going to win. Okay. So they're backing the DNS over TLS horse. Okay whereas Google are backing the DOH horse, which probably means the DOSA horse is going to win right, because right. Google are backing them. But leaving that aside, that's, that's me prognosticating and that, that bad things happen when I do that. So the actual news that broke on April 1st was that there was a fourth big name provider is joining the club. Cloudflare, or a massive corporation who are really good at internet-y stuff. And they are offering what I think is the single best IP address on planet Earth for their DNS resolver, 1.1.1.1 or four ones. April 1st, four one. Oh, is that really what it was? That's really why they launched on <laughs> April 1st. And they figured they would get massive press because everyone would say it was an April Fool's joke and then everyone would say, no, 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 it's real. So they get double the press. <laughs> it kind of worked out for them, but it did confuse a lot of people. Now, Cloudflare is a for-profit company. What Cloudflare sell is content delivery. They are basically a freemium CDN. Now, they do really advanced content delivery services for, for corporations, but they, they have a freemium model. So basically, you could run Podfeed through Cloudflare to get protection from denial of service attacks for free because you're not a giant big site. Uh, but if you became twit.tv or something, then you would end up having to pay. So it's a freemium model. But what they're selling is hosting and 
content distribution. So it's not a conflict of interest because you, the user is the customer. The user isn't being sold as the product. But they are a for-profit company. Okay. But what kind of content delivery? Uh, they, make, they make large websites go. So if you, if you have a website that gets 4,000 hits a minute, and you need someone with some serious expertise to deliver that website, you can't just go to GoDaddy and buy a server. But you're saying That's a little site could be, could be hosted there and wouldn't have to pay anything? Up to a certain point, yes. Huh. Okay. But not hosted. They're, 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 they sit between you and your true hosting. So you buy true hosting from some cheapo provider who doesn't have the, the facilities to, to scale or to protect you from denial of service. Cloudflare then sit in front of that cheapo hosting and they do a whole bunch of caching and all the CDN coolness. Oh, okay. And so the end result is that your actual hosting you're paying for gets almost no traffic because Cloudflare soak it all up for you. Huh. Interesting. Okay. So it's called, it's, it's a content delivery network, right? They're delivering your content. You're hosting it somewhere else, but they're delivering it for you. Hmm. And they have some very advanced services and some really cool technology. They are really good at their job. They, they, they really do power some of the most I think they're good corporate ci- or good internet citizens as well. Weren't they involved in something that... Yes. Uh, Something I will. I, I will. I will give you. I will. I, I will detail that in a moment because yes, oh, they have good. a they have a track record of being good. I call them netizens because I'm old school. <laughs> but yes, good good citizens of the internet. Repeat beard beard with uh, with gray in it. Beard with gray hair. Back in my day, they were net. They were weblogs, not blogs, and we had netizens. Anyway, um, we liked it. Exactly. Now, Cloudflare haven't done this on their own. Cloudflare have teamed with a non-profit called Apnic. And APNIC are the Asia-Pacific subset of ICANN. So ICANN are responsible for assigning IP addresses for the planet. And ICANN do not do that work on their own. ICANN have broken the world into four chunks. And then inside each chunk, they have created another non-profit whose job it is to deal with the IP addresses in their chunk. So for Asia-Pacific, it's APNIC. For Europe, it's RIPE. And for America, it's, oh, what is it again for America? Iron or something like that. Ah, it just escaped me right now. Okay. But just four of them. And APNIC are the ones for Asia Pacific. Now, APNIC own 1.1.1.1. But that IP address has been sitting unused for decades. Hmm. Because it is, for any normal mortal on the planet, an unusable IP address. Because... Any idiot with a keyboard anywhere on planet Earth presented with a dialog box that, ha- that makes no sense to them, that's looking for an IP address, enters 1.1.1.1 and hopes for the best. It's just what people do. Just it's just what people do nature. to make the dialog go away. Oh, funny. So it is the most distributed and of serviced IP address on planet Earth. <laughs> so it's like the most awesome internet uh, or IP address that you can never use. Yes. Okay. Unless... You are a world expert in DDoS protection, like Cloudflare. <laughs> Cloudflare are basically one of a very, very small handful of companies on planet Earth skilled enough to use 1.1.1.1 without being blown off the internet. Because their job so, is to keep people from being blown off the internet? That is literally the product they sell. <laughs> and this proves they're really bloody good at their job. Because they are successfully hosting the fastest DNS service on planet Earth on an IP address that is under 
constant distributed denial of service attack. Huh. So hats off to them. They're they're good at their job. Yeah. So they've entered into agreement with Apnic that they will host this unusable IP address. And what they will give Apnic is all of the logs related to that IP address except the DNS logs. So that will tell Apnic everything that people have done by accidentally putting 1.1 in at one into random text boxes and nothing about DNS. Huh. So our privacy as DNS users is guaranteed. As, I mean, it's a very no, interesting arrangement they've come to. Because we have no so, reason to doubt Apnic because they're a, uh, a not-for-profit company. Well, so no Apnic are never going to get the data. So the people we oh. have to trust is Cloudflare. But Cloudflare are not saying trust us. Cloudflare have done something much more clever. Allow me to quote from the CEO of Cloudflare when explaining their reasons for what they're doing, explaining what they're doing. So the privacy policy is really, really straightforward. This is direct quote from the CEO of Cloudflare. We will never sell your data or use it to target ads, period. We will never log your IP address, the way other companies identify you, in brackets. And we're not just saying that. We've retained KPMG to audit our systems annually to ensure we're doing what we say. Oh, wow. Frankly, yeah. Frankly, we don't want to know what you do on the internet. (laughs) It's none of our business. And we've taken the technical steps to ensure we can't. That's a beautiful privacy statement. Isn't it? I love yeah. it. it. made me very, very happy. Uh, Cloudflare also do NX domain properly. They do DNSSEC. They do eDNS. And they do both DNS over TLS and DOH. Oh, so, really so whichever cool. one wins. Whichever one wins, hey presto. So now we come to what I'm calling the hippy-dippy bit. <laughs> so... As well as saying that we're going to do all this privacy stuff and that we retain KPMG to prove we are, the CEO also explained why a corporate, a corporation that is run for profit is providing a free service. Okay. So I'm going to quote directly. It looks like a lot to read. You're going to to be able to do it? Do you need some help? (laughs) If you would be so kind, I would be very thankful. Bart hates to read out loud, so that's great. Okay, so stop me if we need to. I'll take a pause at the first paragraph because this is going to be a little bit long. He says, the answer to why we built the service goes back to our mission to help build a better internet. People people come to work at Cloudflare every day in order to make the internet better, more secure, more reliable, and more efficient. Sounds cheesy, but it's true. When in 2014, we decided to enable encryption for free for all our customers, a lot of people externally thought we were crazy. In addition to the technical and financial costs, SSL was at the time the primary difference between our free and paid service. And yet it was a hard technical challenge and clearly the right thing to do for the internet. So we did it. And in one day, we doubled the size of the encrypted web. (laughs) Wow. I'm proud of of the fact that three and a half years later, the rest of the industry is starting to follow suit. Then in another section, he says... When last year we made DDoS DDoS mitigation free and unmetered across all our plans, a lot of people again scratched their heads. But it was the right thing to do. You shouldn't have to have a big bank account to stand up to hackers and bullies online. One more section. Part of the reason we've been able to hire such a great team is that we take on big challenges like this when they're the right thing to do. Walk around the office and our team's laptops are adorned with 1.1.1 stickers because we're all proud of what we're doing. That alone made building this a no-brainer. Wow. So, yeah. So basically, these guys have a track record of, doing, of being good net citizens or netizens. 
And yes, it sounds hippy-dippy and lovey-feely, <laughs> but I believe them. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, I mean, because like you say, the track record, right? He just listed all these things they did that everybody said was crazy to give away for free. Yeah. And the thing is, by being a good citizen and getting a good name, they're actually doing really good business because they are attracting in all the good talent. They are providing an amazing service and people are happy to pay them for the higher tiers of that service because they're really good at their job. So by doing the right thing, they're actually helping their bottom line. I like companies that think that way makes me happy so, I, I did want to go back um before you finish um with mm-hmm. with this section um on quad nine something interesting happened i was having trouble with my internet was slow and i thought well i wonder if it's my dns so i added um 8.8.8.8 back in and it got faster and i happened to mention it in a tweet quad nine saw that tweet and said and wrote to me and said hey if you are having trouble with quad nine please tell us in a support email because we really want to know when these things happen and when something happens it was like wow that's good yeah excellent i like that that is good to know so they're watching the social media looking for people with problems and proactively reaching out nice yeah so the primary focus of Oh, wait a minute. Cloudflare is privacy, by the oh, way. I forgot good. to say that up front. Right. Which is why they're doing all of the not logging anything, getting KPMG in and doing DNS over TLS and DNS over HTTPS and all that good stuff. So how do you choose between Quad 9 and Quad 1? Well, Quad 1 is all about security. Quad mm-hmm. 9 is about privacy. Not the same thing. Malware protection versus your privacy. Which is the higher... Okay, so now they're both pretty darn good on their privacy statements. Yes, uh, so which one is more about uh, malware protection? The primary focus of Quad Nine is is malware prevention. Right. The primary focus of one dot one dot one dot one is privacy. Hmm. And speed. And speed. Speed is their second, but they're very careful to say that it's privacy and speed, and they are the fastest. So currently, benchmarks show them as edging out eight dot eight dot eight dot eight. This is, this is, a, that one's a hard call. I just like Cloudflare. <laughs> yeah, but I so mean. So I've made the call to go to 1.1.1.1 because I like Cloudflare. There, there's something about the company that says, these are my people. Yeah. I, I like people who think like this. So I'll support them. Okay. But uh, like but I say, you're like right. Like you said, it's nine good. We great solutions. Yeah. Yeah. Now you can use both. You right? can, but then you're going to randomly get one or the other. So I, I kind of like to know what I'm getting. Huh. You mean if you put them in primary and secondary, it doesn't always go to primary first? It's up to the operating system, but I would not count on it being done in the order you think. Hmm. Just from experience, operating systems don't always think linearly. Okay. They are named as such in many operating systems, but I wouldn't count on it. Well, in my router, they're called that. But I guess that's the next section you're going to tell us. How do you alter your DNS settings? Right. So you Okay, so now you've decided, I want a third party, and you've decided which third party you want. Now you actually have to implement it. So that's the final part of this. Uh, so this is where diagrams 2, 3, and 4 come in, because you basically have three options for how to do this. So let's start at the easiest possible option. You go into your router, you find the one text box where it specifies the two, probably, 
DNS resolver is it supports, and you type in one or two IP addresses. If you're using Quad9, there is only one. If you're using Quad, if you're using Cloudflare, it's 1.1.1.1, and their secondary is 1.0.0.1, and Google is 8.8.8.8 and 8.8.4.4, and open DNSs are published on their website because they're utterly unmemorable. <laughs> 208.67.222.123 and oh, 208.67.220.123. I couldn't even remember the 1.1.1 secondary one. So, In all cases, though, they will have those IP addresses in giant big writing. And as I say, Quad9 have made it very easy. They have one IP, hundreds and hundreds of servers powering that IP, but it's one IP. So you find that one text box or maybe two text boxes in your router's interface most routers are written by idiots, so you might have some work to do to find the bloody thing, but you will eventually find it. You change the value, you hit save, you reboot the router, and then every device in your network is now using that resolver. So that's the situation in diagram number three. Okay, hang on. Um, so you entitled that one third-party DNS hard-coded on device. Oh, sugar, that is number four. Okay. Number four, hard-coded on your router. Okay. All right. Okay. So basically, everything goes to your router, your your router, router, whatever we're calling it today, goes out to the third-party server instead of your ISP server, and hey, presto, everything works fine. But of course, as soon as you leave your house, as soon as you go to a coffee shop, oh, look, you're using their router and their ISP again. Because all you've done is changed your house. So as soon as you leave your house, no more changes. So you might say, ah, well, then I should update the setting on all of my devices. So that's option number two, hard-coded into each device. That yeah. will work. What, what was the advantage of that? Again, I've seen people do that, and I don't understand why I'd want to do that. Well, if you do it on your iPhone and you go to a coffee shop, your iPhone has it hard-coded, so your iPhone is still going to ah. go to Quad 9 or whatever. Ah. So if you look in the diagram, whatever way I've numbered it, what you will see is that every device that you can hard-code it on is now always going to go to the third party, the exception being your IoT devices, because they probably don't have a way for you to change them. Right. So they'll be left on their own, talking to your router, talking to your... But ISP. I hope my light bulb isn't going to Starbucks. <laughs> <laughs> you never know. Battery powered. Anyway. <laughs> no, no, but it's going to continue to go through your router because you haven't changed your router's config. You've changed the config on your devices and you can't change it on your IoT. Right. So what I would recommend is a hybrid approach. It's really easy to change your router. So just do that. And that covers your desktops, it covers your IoT, it covers anything that never leaves your house. And then on the one or two devices that do leave your house, hard code them too. Hmm. And then you have the best of both worlds. When you leave your that house... actually never occurred to me. I feel idiotic that I never thought of that, that, you know, that that's an advantage. Yeah, so just do it to both and then everyone's fixed. That's a, that's a great idea. I love it. And that, that's all she wrote, which I think is enough to be getting on with. <laughs> I think so. Um, I am toying with the idea of bookmarking where you say, now let's answer the question, because I think people might want to come back to that point, putting in oh, a chapter mark. Yeah. But I don't want to hear any whining if they start there and then they go, hey, what is DOH? What is IPC? What is all this stuff, right? Can you tell that I do DNS administration for a profession? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this this was a lot more information than I thought, but uh, it, I learned a ton, Barton. Parts of this, uh, bits and pieces, you you have talked about in uh, Chit Chat before, 
but it's all yeah. collated in one spot. And as always, Bart has fantastic detailed notes. Everything we talked about is in here in a uh, a really tremendous document. This is uh, this is something to bookmark for sure. Yay! As I really enjoyed creating this episode. As soon as I had the idea, I got all excited about it and spent <laughs> three days drawing diagrams and then wrote some text. <laughs> All right, Bart. Well, um, I'm not sure how we sign off when it's a regular chit-chat. Oh, you can probably go with uh, your happy computing one, right? I can go with happy computing, or I can tell you that you can stay patched and stay secure. And the next time we talk, we get to do another show just like this, where it's all about the GDPR. Oh, yeah, that's going to be fun. All right, we'll talk to you soon. So how's about this? How's about this? Stay patched and stay private. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Chit Chat Across the Pond. This show is not supported by ads. It's supported by you. If you learn from the show, or even if you're just merely entertained by the shows, please consider supporting the show. If you go to podfeet.com, there's a big red button in the top banner that says support the show. If you click it, that will reveal to you several ways to contribute. You can pledge a monthly amount using Patreon. You can use the Amazon affiliate link for your country. You can make a one-time donation using PayPal, or you can record a listener review, which is an awesome way to contribute. You can always chat directly with me via Twitter at Podfeet or email me at allison at podfeet.com. You can join the conversation in Facebook by going to podfeet.com slash Facebook or on Google Plus at podfeet.com slash Google Plus. Thanks for listening and stay subscribed.